long. Or give online at kpft.org. You can make a one-time gift. This is KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM and FM HD1. I'm Sabali, a longtime supporter and content contributor to Pan-African Journal, urging you to call now to keep local stories and radio on the air. This year, thousands of teachers, students, parents, and staff will be adversely impacted by the current HISD administration selected by people from Austin to remove 28 libraries from local schools that need them the most. We need to keep updating you on those current issues that are affecting the state takeover of HISD, the largest school district here in Texas. Support Pan-African Journal in our efforts to keep you abreast of what's going on. Go online to kpft.org and make a $25, $50, or $100 donation. And please make sure to note in your donation that it's for Pan-African Journal. Hi, my name is August. You're listening to Akua from Pan-African Journal, KPFT Houston. Listen to Pan African Journal on KPFT in Houston, and I hope you do too. Good evening, and welcome to Pan African Journal. I'm Akua Holt. The following program was pre recorded. Pacifica Radio's special broadcast, Black History in the Making, Reclaiming Our Past, Redefining Our Future. This show is presented by Pacifica Radio's COVID Race and Democracy and the Pacifica COVID Task Force. Stay with us. I'm Verna Avery Brown, broadcasting from WPFW Radio in the nation's capital. Throughout history, society has looked to poets to provide somewhat of an unorthodox, if you will, perspective on the events and occurrences in our lives. Poets often see things through a different lens and are brave enough to express things exactly as they see them. Ever since President John F. Kennedy invited Robert Frost to speak at his inauguration in 1961, poets have been included in the sacred swearing into office ceremony. Poets have, in a sense, set the spiritual tone for the incoming administrations over the years. Interestingly enough, though, Democrats are alone in that practice. No modern Republican commander-in-chief has ever invited a poet to speak at their swearing-in ceremony. Does that fact in and of itself speak volumes? And if so, what should we glean from it? What role does poetry play in politics? Well, to address that, we turn to Nikki Giovanni, a living icon in the cultural world of poetry. She's spoken to us through her activism and poetic works and writings since the 60s. She's a commentator, an activist, and educator. Nikki Giovanni is known as the poet of the Black Revolution mainly for her Black Power-inspired writings of the 60s and 70s. Her work is also contemporary, as she's created the Black Panther story for the tales of Wakanda. She's the recipient of the American Book Award, the Langston Hughes Medal, seven NAACP Image Awards, and she's one of Oprah's 25 living legends. She has been nominated for a Grammy Award for her poetry album, the Nikki Giovanni Poetry Collection. And those are just a few of her accomplishments and honors. It would literally take me the entire hour if, if I named them all. She's currently University Distinguished Professor at Virginia Tech. 
It's indeed my honor to welcome poet, activist, commentator, writer, and professor Nikki Giovanni. Welcome, Professor Giovanni. Welcome. Thank you, Thank you very much. I'm delighted. So, um, Professor, I want to start with the present moment. How do you view this moment in history in February 2021, having just elected Joe Biden as president, impeaching Donald Trump again as we speak? We're in the midst of a deadly pandemic and still in the grips of entrenched racism. Now, you write about finding song in the darkest days. Are these the darkest days in our contemporary times? Perhaps not, but we, we, we look at it. It is a dark day, and we can't avoid that. And I really, uh, I don't pray uh, because I don't want to erase my prayers on it, but I'm hoping that Donald Trump is arrested and put in jail for the murder of at least five people. That is wow. something that I, uh, I hope that uh, uh, the, the Congress has enough uh, uh, courage to do. I, uh, I don't see any reason why, why they should not. They, they were the ones who were running. We who are black were not ever the ones who were running from from the days that we were sold in Africa and brought to America. You didn't see us running under our our desk or something. They were the ones that were running and picking up pens and pencils, trying to protect themselves. So they ought to know they need to get rid of this fool. But this is something that uh, they'll take care of. But may I say, as we are speaking of Donald, one of the things that you knew, definitely knew something was wrong was when he didn't have a dog. There's no, there's no, there is no leader, period. If you don't have a dog, something's wrong with you. If a dog or a cat cannot be bothered with you, something's wrong with you. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, I hope nobody votes for this fool. He doesn't have a dog. Mm, mm. Well, that's true. He is one of the few presidents uh, that has occupied the Oval Office that has not brought a pet in with him. Um, so I guess, you know, what does that say about a person? No, I mean, Queen Elizabeth has dogs. Uh, uh, all over the world, people have dogs, except Putin doesn't, Trump doesn't, and uh, Hitler didn't. So it told you something about how evil they must be that a, a, a four-legged animal won't be around them. Can you imagine? Something, something, something is wrong. So I, that's the way, I, even, even Bush, even the Bushes, even if you didn't like the Bushes and you didn't have to, but they had dogs. And, mm. and the old, when old Bush died, you remember? One of the saddest things was watching his dog come mm. and lay on, the, on, on, on his, his grave. Then you knew maybe this is not a guy that you agreed with, but this was a guy that had some humanity that his dog was going to miss it. Mm. If there is something to be said about that relationship between man and dog, um, clearly. Well, you know, um, the deadly pandemic that we're in continues to ravage through our country and, and the, the world as well. Uh, in the, the U.S. today, February 9th, 2021, there have been 459,185 deaths in the U.S. alone from COVID-19. Now, Donald Trump contracted COVID, but recovered in warp speed time. Now, you made a statement, Professor Giovanni, about his experience that shocked some, but was applauded by many. Um, you said that America would be much better off if Donald Trump and his family had died from COVID. Extrapolate on that statement, if you will. Well, nothing, I mean, it would have been the better thing. I can, I mean, just think about all of these people that died, and yet in the White House, we have the so-called, he was the president then, and his wife, this foreigner, and this child who can't talk. And they were all right. And everybody else, nobody has told me, how are the people, I want to know, how are the people that cooked the food? How are the people that changed the beds? We don't know how they were because they had to be a part of the 400 and something thousand who died. But I don't believe, and I've talked to enough people to, to, to have been confirmed, I don't believe Trump had, had any COVID. I believe that he pretended to have it so that he could show everybody, see, I can win. I'm, I'm really tough. I don't think he had it. And I think that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons that, that uh, Walter Reed, they've, they've shut down so much of the information coming out of Walter Reed uh, Hospital. 
there are many people out there who agree with you that think that he never had it. My thinking is that what would he stand to benefit from that since he was promoting the fact that it was a hoax all along? So why would he um, say that, you know, he had the hoax? Well, he because he thinks he can beat anything. I, I can't think for, for Trump. <laughs> and I can't think for how he comes up with what he comes up with or what he thinks sounds really good. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just doesn't, it didn't seem right that 400 and something thousand people in America have died and he didn't. And so my, my statement was simply, I don't understand why. And mm-hmm. I asked a friend of mine, the commissioner in, in DC where you are, I asked him to, to do me a favor, which he won't do. He, he's a nice enough guy, but he won't. I said, <laughs> I, want you to go around, I want you to go around to the churches and find out how many of the black people who worked in the White House are now dead from the cold. Because mm-hmm. I know you're not uh, the people who work in the White House are mm-hmm. all going to be are all going to be church people because they're not going to have people like me. They're not going to let any poets in. They're not going to let any former you know Black Panthers in. None of that. It, it's going to be good church going men and women who work. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what's the death rate mm-hmm. of those people. What are they hiding? We're not getting information about that. Like we're not getting a lot of information on January the 6th. We know that five people have died. Hmm. That, that mm-hmm. Everybody's agreed five people died. And we saw, one we saw because they beat him to death. But no. it, had to be, it had to be more than that because we, we saw it. We were looking at it on television. Mm. We saw people being beaten. Being a black American, we've seen white people riot. And we know that that many people rioting against that few, it had to be more 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 deaths than we're talking about. Now, have you ever stepped foot inside the U.S. Capitol, Professor Giovanni? And did you obviously watch on TV, even though Gil Scott Heron told us that the revolution would not be televised? It seems that we we actually watched an angry white revolution unfold before our eyes on the screens in our homes on January sixth. In D.C., but of course I've been in the Capitol. I've, I've visited the Capitol. You you take your child to the Capitol. This is a part of, of the history of America. As I took my child when he was a child to mm-hmm. see other places of, of importance, his, historical importance. And it reminded me, what, what January the 6th reminded me so much of was reading about, because of course I wasn't around, I wasn't alive then, was reading about the Tulsa. Right. Mm. was reading about those 400 people, and we are now finding out how many, we're now un, un, uh, un, uncovering bodies because they're now, oh, at first it was like, well, all of the black people just sort of ran away. But, <sighs> now, but we are now finding the bodies. We are now digging up bodies. So we, we, we know that something evil is happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that the only response, I think the only response to evil is to call it what, what it is. And uh, we have to remember Gill, and I knew Gill, of course, because the revolution was televised. It was always going to be televised. And Gill didn't realize, if you think about his poem, he thought, yeah, mm-hmm. we can, we can, they're not going to let us know what they're doing. But Donald Trump told us what he was doing all along. He said, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to get mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to believe it, but he did. That's what? why he must be convicted. What was your reaction when you saw them storming the Capitol like that? It's, it's white people doing what white people do when they don't like, <laughs> when things happen that they don't like. I was just glad I wasn't there. And I was sorry for the people. I was, and I was sorry for the people who were. But clearly, clearly someone or many people involved in this were a part. Clearly senators were involved showing these people the day before how to get around. Clearly, we have not found all of the bombs that are in Washington. You should be careful and they hate you. Clearly, it's not over. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, it's not over. Uh, but you look at it and I think that's one reason that uh, even Fox said, you know, we got to get rid of Lou Dobbs. And people are beginning to say, to see, we cannot redo the Holocaust. Mm. And that's what some of the people would like to do, to be honest. I mean, that's what I... That's what I'm seeing. And I think you have to be very careful because everybody who has tried to be sensible about this thing 
And I say that about Joe Biden. I do not know Mr. Biden. I do not know Ms. Harris, uh, president and vice president. But I know this. The last time a president tried to be nice about a fool, he was shot. And I think that I think Biden ought to remember that. Lincoln said that, you know, we, we're going to forgive everybody. No, baby, that's not the way you treat these people. That's not the way they were trying to treat you. Well, um, Professor Giovanni, there was also a really powerful movement that was born out of the death of George Floyd. Uh, millions of people all around, of all races worldwide, reacted to the death of this unarmed black man, murdered basically in front of our eyes by a callous racist cop, while others stood by and just let it happen. What, Professor Giovanni, do you think occurred in that incident that led so many people to become, as Dick Gregory said, woke? Um, white people and black people, for that matter. What do you think happened in that moment that led to that? I think Black Lives Matter is one of the most important issues, one of the most important groups. And those young women who started this group before that, I think that their organization, I think that they're pulling things together because this was global. And I was so proud to be a black woman. And I was so proud, I'm sure that the mothers of these girls were young women, were so proud to say my daughter had something to do with making sure that the world knows this will not happen again. When Emmett Till, which was a horrible thing, and I remember Emmett Till, I, I didn't know them, of course, but when Emmett Till was murdered, people were upset, but we didn't get that reaction. And somebody said, now this is too much. And I was looking at television, of course, and I saw Perth, Australia, and I won't get over that. The, there was a, a, a movement in Perth, Australia. People were walking in the street, walking with us, and I, us being Black Americans. Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I thought that they had shown the world. We had to be very proud of them because they are saying to everybody, we are living on planet Earth. And I think that it's time that we recognize, as we should, race is, is, a, is a construct. It's time we, we let, let it go. It's time mm -hmm. the race went out because we are here. We are in space. We have the opportunity. We have, we have uh, civilians now going into space. And it's time that we recognize that we are all earthlings. And it's a, it's a term that needs to come in as we need to get rid of the term white supremacy. Because there's nothing supreme about being white. All we know, the only thing about being white is that you have to be taught to hate. Mm. That's the only thing that, you, that you've learned. We need to get rid of that and we need to come into, we are earthlings. We are all here on this earth, on mm. this blue ball in space. And it's something mm. we need to teach our children and it's so something we need to teach each other. Eliminate that phrase, white supremacists, for starters, is what you're saying, Professor. Oh, yeah, it has to go because there's nothing supreme. What's supreme about saying, I paid a dime. I, I'll never forget Miss, Miss, Mrs. Parks. I paid a dime, got on the bus, walked around to the back because that was during the age of segregation and sat down. And then a white man who paid the same dime got on the bus and walked around to the front. But there was no what was called a white seat. Well, the seats weren't white or black. The seats were there. But it, I've often wondered, what did he think? I'm superior, I'm better, you paid the same dime. Did your dime change you? What happened there? Somebody tried to make that fool feel like you're better than she is. But she said no, and in that way that Mrs. Parks had. She mm -hmm. said no, I'm not moving. And so everybody wants, oh, she was tired, her feet were tired, no. Her heart and her soul were tired, she said no. Mm -hmm. I often thought in the George Floyd situation, the fact that he called out for his mama um, may have struck a particular chord in individuals. I heard Cicely Tyson recently uh, talking about how she had spoken to a, a white gentleman who said when he heard the young black man call his father daddy, then it shifted something in him. His consciousness sort of shifted. So I'm wondering if they heard 
a black man calling out for his mama actually um, struck a chord within them and shifted their consciousness that we are all, we all have a mama. We all have a daddy. <laughs> that I cannot answer you. I just know that most of us, when we are dying, do call for our, our mothers particularly because we came to earth on, on our, with our mothers. We, we were in our mothers and we were born and we're gonna go out calling our mothers. I don't know what, what anybody thinks about, about that, but I was <laughs> laughing with my class about that. I said, you know, the one thing that our mothers taught us when we were in her and we were all, that one thing we all, everybody on earth has in common is that we all came to earth through a woman. Mm -hmm. And our mothers would sing songs to us and our mothers would touch that space where you are and would sing to us. And that's one of the reasons that we all love music. We all come out somehow hearing music because our mothers sang to us. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so proud, again, I'm so proud of Black Lives Matter because I'm so proud that the women are finally, not finally, because the women have always been a part of it, but the women are saying, this has to stop. I cannot be a part of this, it has to stop. And women are doing a wonderful job. So yes, black women have literally been phenomenal uh, in, in this year of 2021 and throughout history for that matter. Let me just say, you're listening to Pacifica Radio's special broadcast, Black History in the Making, Reclaiming Our Past, Redefining Our Future. I'm Verna Avery Brown, broadcasting from WPFW Radio in the nation's capital. Uh, Professor Giovanni, there is a point where poetry and politics mingle and the intersection between poetry and politics throughout your career, Nikki Giovanni, you have gifted us with your political voice through your poetry, much of which is, has been resistance poetry. You have written, oh, have you written anything about Donald Trump's brand of racism and the pandemic that you could share with us? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, I really haven't, thank you. But you know, uh, very, when we go back, poetry, going back to Socrates, has had something to say about the politics of the world. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we can go all the way back. So it, it, we, we in the 60s, in the 1960s, in the 1980s or 2000s, we have not invented something. We have simply carried on where our profession has begun. Mm -hmm. And poetry has always tried to find that metaphor that says we can do and be better. That's what we can do and be. I, mm -hmm. I, I think that it's, it's important for somebody like me, I'm, I'm just a poet. I've also written a lot of love poems because I'm always in love. And mm -hmm. that's always, poets are, I mean, they're always in love. We are always in love. And I like to cook, I'm a Southerner. So I like mm -hmm. to cook. And I've written a lot of poems about cooking. And recently I was in the New York Times and they were laughing at me because uh, she asked me, Miss Harris asked me, well, what do you like to cook? And I gave her my chicken in, in butter recipe. And it was really funny. I was, oh my God. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not a chef. I'm, I'm not, I'm just a, a, a Southern cook. And I think that, that what you have to do is enjoy what you are and where you are. I can't Absolutely. bake, by the way, I must tell you that. Uh, I, can't, I can't bake at all. Can't bake, I, okay, it's an okay. No. But I, can't I, do, I, I would can't. love to get that fried chicken recipe that I've heard so much about. <laughs> New York Times, it, that you can, that's easy. But I, I've never learned to make biscuits and I'm really sorry about that. Uh, mm -hmm. I was a friend of uh, El, uh, Edna Lewis and she mm -hmm. tried to teach me how to make it. And my grandmother tried to teach me. I, don't, I wrote a poem called Legacy. Uh -huh. And in the poem, her, her grandmother, the little girl's grandmother calls her to say, it's time for me to teach you this. And the little girl pokes out her, her, her tongue and says, I don't want to learn. And the reason she didn't want to learn is that she knew when her grandmother was gone, she would rather miss her. And I guess that was exactly because every time I think about biscuits, I know that I miss, I miss my grandmother. And mm -hmm. I don't wish she were here to cook. I don't wish it was about the biscuits. I wish it was about grandmother. Absolutely. And I think that it's important for, for all, for everybody to remember who you love and who loved you. And I think that I've been very, very um, fortunate 
very fortunate in, in having my, my grandmother and grandfather, because I, I, I said it in, in uh, my new book, Make Me Rain, what I know about love, I learned from them. Mm-hmm. I learned how they treated each other, what they meant to each other. And I was very fortunate to be able to live with them, to see that there is something called love. So as we began this conversation, I've been upset because I, I keep, of course, hoping that Donald Trump will be convicted. But what was important that we didn't start with is, what do you know? You're a poet. What do you know about love? And what I know about love is watching my grandfather. And, and he would go to the market on Saturday. And on the days that, that the market, and they didn't always have it, would have pineapples. And he would be so excited when he would come home. He would, you could hear it in his voice. And you could hear, Louvenia, they had pineapple. And she would, that's grandmother's name, and she would just beam. I don't like pineapple. I still don't. But he would make pineapple ice cream, and it would just make mm. me just like, oh, no, I hate pineapple ice cream. <laughs> you could see she was so excited that John Brown got her pineapple ice cream. And the only other love that I've seen like that in a movie was The Godfather. Mm. When, when The Godfather got, you remember Vito got fired from his job. He stopped and, and purchased a pear for his wife. And mm. I thought, that's a, a Puzo, that was one of the best parts of that movie. Puzo showed that this is a great man because he, he, just, he, he knew whatever was going to happen with him and with his family, whatever he was going to have to do, but he was going to take a pear home. And I, it reminded me of Graham. I could hear. Mm, the pear and pineapple. I, I could, and I thought that was so, that was so beautiful. And I think that it's important that we, we deal with that kind of love. It, it's important that we reminding each other that we love each other. Mm-hmm. Well, you do write extensively about love, uh, Nikki Giovanni, and I'm, I wonder what does it mean to you to fall in love with someone, and do you really ever fall out of love with that person uh, that you fell in love with? Can can love be managed in that way? There's a reason pencils have erasers. You get tired of anything, <laughs> and they get tired of you, but. Uh, you know, you do your best and then it's not working anymore. And rather than have fights about it and rather than have arguments about it, oh, this isn't working. And you go on about about your business. And I think that's something that we need to learn. Everybody uh, is, is embarrassed. Like, oh, divorce is a terrible thing. I think divorce makes a whole lot of sense because when you don't have divorce, you either have somebody getting beaten, which we've all seen, or you have somebody being killed, which is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Nothing lasts forever. Hmm. So you do what you can while you can. And you remember, memories are incredibly, incredibly important. And hmm. I don't know that I'd rather, ha- I probably would rather have the memories than the love. Hmm. So now you once wrote, if you wanted to know what I am doing on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock, I was listening to my father beat my mother. You mentioned that someone was beaten. What influence did that experience have on the course of your life, if any? It showed me that there had to be something better, which is why I was very fortunate. My godmother gave me, my godmother passed and left me $50 when that was real money. And I took that. I went, uh, I took the $50 and got on a train. And, and uh, I think I must have left a note to my mother to say I've gone to, to grandmother's. I don't remember that. But I got mm-hmm. on the train and I went to, to grandmother's. And while I was there, I, was, I, I said to grandmother, you know, may I live with you? Because I knew I could not live with my mother and my father. I'm now old enough to know that she probably knew more about their situation than I, at, at, at 12, was mm-hmm. it, that she knew. But... Um, and it's something that I say, or that I write, I, I don't write about it that much, but that I've written about, I write because other, I'm not the only person who had to hear her father hit her mother. And mm-hmm. people think, oh, it's an embarrassment, or it's my fault, or I've done something. And it's not, it, it's not. And I said that to my mother after my father died, you know, you should have married me. 
And she laughed. She said, well, if I had married you, how would I have gotten you? I said, I don't know. You know, we, we have <laughs> the science of that. But um, it, it was very, uh, it's, it's disturbing. And you have to recognize what is your fault and what isn't and what you can do about things and what you can't. And I think you have to learn to accept your responsibility and you have to let go that which is not your responsibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I've been very lucky. I think grandmothers, are, I'm a grandmother now, and I think grandmothers are, are, are God's gift on earth. I, I just really, if you say, what, what did God give the earth? He gave him son and he gave him grandmothers. Mm -hmm. it, it's just nothing like a grandmother because you know that you always have some place to go. And I teach a class, children's literature, writing for a young audience. And we, we always talk about why did Little Red Riding Hood why did her mother send her to her grandmother? And this was, we have to remember, during the age of scarlet fever. And we know that she must have sent her to her grandmother to be safe. Mm. And she put red on her so mm. that anyone who saw her would know, because red was a sign, don't touch this person. They are, they're dangerous. They have scarlet, the scarlet letter. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. The red's very important. And I, I, I want my students to know that, that it wasn't just some, some dummy that decided to write some folktale. It was somebody saying how important it is that you have a grandmother and how important it is that your mother gave, and that's a hard thing to do, but her mother made a basket, did, gave the food that she had to give and told her, now go straight to your grandmother. You'll be safe. You're listening to Black History in the Making, Reclaiming Our Past, Redefining Our Future. This show is presented by Pacifica Radio's COVID Race and Democracy and the Pacifica COVID Task Force. Hi, this is August. You're listening to Pan-African Journal. This is KPFT Houston. Stay tuned. I'm Verna Avery Brown, broadcasting from WPFW Radio in the nation's capital. I want to circle back around uh, Nikki Giovanni to your political uh, consciousness. History has been made in the election of Kamala Harris as the first black woman elected vice president of the US. It kind of strikes me as poetic justice that a black woman would be named vice president before a white woman, given the history of the white woman suffrage movement that really sought to exclude the participation of black women in exchange for support from Southern white women. Um, now you're a Delta Sigma Theta, I know. Uh, I, I'm sure you're aware of the history that Deltas were invited to march in the suffrage parade in 1913 and were then uninvited out of fear of losing the support of the white Southern woman. Had you thought about Kamala Harris's election in that context in history? Well, uh, I've been invited to the White House before and uh, I sincerely hope that I get invited again uh, uh, ju just, just, just for this reason, Kamala is um, an AKA, and I want to go to the White House with my red and my white. <laughs> she definitely owes the Deltas, and I, <laughs> I want to, I want to say that she owes the Delta, and I think we have to look at it exactly that way. She, she's a bright. I mean, I have no issue with Cam with Ms. Harris at all. But mm -hmm. I think that uh, at some point she needs to invite the Deltas in to, to thank us. Yes. For yes. Deciding that no matter what, we were gonna we were gonna march and we were gonna do our best to see to it that black women and that black people voted. Well, she owes a lot more than the Deltas. Black women have paid the price for Kamala Harris to hold that office of vice president. They fought and suffered for voting rights throughout history. And while there were many unsung sheroes, the name of Fannie Lou Hamer stands out. In this clip, Ms. Hamer spoke publicly of the suffering she personally endured in the fight for blacks to vote. Let's give it a listen. 
I had been to a voter registration workshop, you know, to they were just training and teaching us how to register, to pass the literacy test, and it was giving us enough training that we could tell other people, you know, how to pass the literacy test. So we had attended a workshop from the 3rd of June to the 8th. We finished the workshop on the 8th, and then we got the uh, Continental Trailway bus to come back to Mississippi. And we got to Winona, uh, Mississippi, uh, I would say, about 10.30 that Sunday morning on our way back to Greenwood, and that was we had got in 25 miles of the voter registration headquarters. And the bus stopped in Winona, you know, at the bus terminal. And four people got off of the bus, you know, to use the uh, restaurant to get food. And two people got off to use the washroom while I was still on the bus. When I looked through the glass, I saw the people rush out. And one of the girls would had gone in the washroom. She just got back on the bus. And I stepped off to see what had happened. And uh, Miss Ponder told me that it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police on the inside and began to tap them on the shoulders with billy clubs and ordered them to get out. And I said, well, this is Mississippi. So I got back on the bus, and as soon as I was seated, I saw them when they began to put the five people what was, you know, off the bus, but they wasn't over uh, six feet from the bus, began to put them in the highway patrolman's car. And I stepped off again because I was holding one of the ladies' irons, you know, that they was arresting. And she said, get back on the bus, Miss Hamer. And then I heard somebody scream from the car that she was in and said, get that one there. And then a white man stepped out of a car and told me I was under arrest. And when he opened the door and I went to get in the car, he kicked me. And they carried me on down to the county jail where they had the other highway patrolman had carried the other five. And they, you know, when I, we walked in, when I walked in with the two white men that had carried me down and they cursed me all the way down, they would ask me questions and when I would try to answer, they would tell me to hush. And I, when, we, when I walked inside of the booking room, one of the policemen went over and jumped up on one of the Negroes' feet that was with us, and then they just began to, you know, put us in cells. And I was put in a cell with Miss Evesta Simpson, and after I was put in the cell, I could just hear some horrible screams and horrible sounds, you know, of licks. And I saw one of the girls was 15 years old was with us. When she passed my cell and she was real bloody, and then they asked the little man that cleaned up the jail to go inside and mop up that blood. And then I heard some more screaming, and I heard some awful sounds. And I would hear somebody when they say, can't you say yes, sir, nigger? Can't you say yes, sir? And they would call her names that I wouldn't want to go on tape. And she said, yes, I can say yes, sir. So I said, and she said, I don't know you well enough. And I would hear when she would hit the floor again. And finally, she began to pray. And she asked God to have mercy on these people because they didn't know what they was doing. And after a while, they passed my cell door with this young woman, Miss Annel Ponder. And one of her eyes looked like blood and her hair was standing up on her head and her clothes had been torn from the shoulder down to the waist. And then three white men came to my cell and one of them was a state highway patrolman because he was wearing a little silver plate across his pocket that said John L. Bassinger. And he asked me where I was from and I told him I was from Rural. And he said, I'm gonna check that. And he went out and I guess he called Ruval, and they did, didn't like me in Ruval because I worked with voter registration there. And when he came back, he said, you damn right, you're from Ruval, all right, and we gonna make you wish you was dead. And they led me out of that cell into another cell, and he gave a Negro prisoner a blackjack, and he ordered me to lay down on a bunk bed 
And a Negro prisoner said, do you want me to beat her with this, sir? And he said, you're damn right, because if you don't, you know what I'll do for you. And I laid down on the bunk like he ordered me to do. And the first Negro beat me. He beat me until he was exalted. And after he beat, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. And during the time he was beating, I began to work my feet because that was a horrible experience. And the State Highway Patrolman ordered the first Negro that had beat to sit on my feet while the second one beat. And I just began to scream where I couldn't control it. And then the white man got up and began to beat me in my head. I have a blood clot now and the artery to the left eye and a permanent kidney injury on the right side from that beating. These are the things that we go through in the state of Mississippi, just trying to be treated like a human being. But still, this is called a part of America. So that's Fannie Lou Hamer. That's a familiar story. It always brings tears to my eyes, but it it bears being heard over and over again. Um, Nikki Giovanni, you've heard that before. Uh, your thoughts, your your reaction. Until there's nothing living in me, I will vote because of that beating that Ms. Hamer took to try to make people like me, to try to make black people vote. It, it's, you, you, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it, it's just an incredibly, it's, it's too sad. I mean, it the whole story, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson, they had gone because she had formed the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And uh, what what she wanted was her, was them to be seated. And Lyndon Johnson tried to uh, uh, negotiate, tried to say, well, you know, uh, we can give you two seats. And she said, uh, and I remember that, we didn't come here for no two seats. And uh, going back to Mississippi, uh, this was going to happen, and 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 it did. It's, it's just an incredibly. Um, it's not even. It's sad. It's not even a word. Well, you produced an ad encouraging blacks to vote in the recent election. Um, is is this a moment where we can exhale and celebrate that Democrats now have control of the White House, the Congress, and a very fragile majority in the Senate? I mean, you've seen, you have the long view of history, uh, Professor Giovanni, you've seen this scenario before. Obama had an even greater margin at the beginning of his presidency, and yet the Republicans obstructed at every turn. You always give it to us straight. Is this a kumbaya moment or a time for unity? I, I don't think that anybody can think that it's safe or everything is all right. I, we started this discussion with, I really hope that Donald Trump is convicted. And we started, we talked about COVID and I said, I didn't understand why he wasn't dead. But I know that we cannot assume that everything will be all right. And uh, I'm glad to see we have a vice president, um, Vice President Harris. I think that, that any, well, anybody's better than, than Trump. And I think that Biden, might be a, a, a more decent man, but how, how, what do you have to be to be more decent than Donald Trump? Because uh, it, it's like, you know, what did Germany have to do to finally recognize that they needed to get rid of Hitler? And millions of people died, millions of people, not, not just uh, six million uh, Jewish people, but the people who had to fight against him, against the Germans, against mm -hmm. the Italians. So we, we, these 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 points of evil are going to have to be uh, uh, continued continually fought against, and they're going to have to be those people in that that rioting are going to have to be brought to justice, and they're going to have to be put in jail, and the people who murdered those five people who are dead are going to have to be somehow they're going to have to be accounted. For. We are getting rid of more and more, of course, the uh, uh, death penalty. Everybody, well, we don't like the death penalty, 
Well, we wish that the people who killed us didn't like the death penalty. We wish that everybody felt that way, but they don't. And so it has to be something to think about to watch that, 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 that policeman, watch that, 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 that uh, um, uh, come down on his head like mm-hmm. that, to kill him. So I, I, I think, I, I, I think it, it, it's just not a good time to be nice. I, I think it's time that, that we fight back. Mm. Okay. Politician, lawyer, voting rights activist Stacey Abrams, who was instrumental in turning the red state of Georgia blue, has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And um, ironically, so has Donald Trump. Um, your thoughts about that? Well, that's ridiculous, Donald Trump. But when I, I read that, that uh, Ms. Abrams had been nominated. I just smiled. I think that she deserves it for whatever any of these prizes, we all have prizes, but we're still fighting a fight. But it would just be lovely to see Ms. Abrams. Yes, and in fact, for her to beat Donald Trump in the process of getting that Nobel Peace Prize. Well, that has to be some kind of a joke. (laughs) No, it has to be. I mean, Donald Trump has has killed more people right now. If we look at the number of people killed from from, uh, COVID, He's killed more people than we've killed in the wars. So if the Nobel people want to award Donald Trump anything, goody for them, because they, they are useless people. That, that would be one reason that, Donald, that, that Bob Dylan would be right to say, I don't want your shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want it. I, I, but I don't want it because maybe he saw something that we didn't see. Mm-hmm. Well... I'm not sure what universe Trump would be eligible for a Peace Prize, uh, much less the Nobel Peace Prize, um, but that remains the same. Professor Gianna, your body of works includes eight nonfiction works, 10 spoken word albums, and 12 children's books. What must we teach our children, all of them, the Black, the White, the Latino, the Native Americans, and the Asians? Or is it a different message for each one of them? We have to teach our children and we have to remind ourselves that we all live on the same planet. With any luck, we drink clean water and we breathe clean air. I, uh, I think that we really are all the same. I, I, you, you just kind of get tired of that. Mm-hmm. That whole concept, concept of race is a construct. Yes. And it's time that we admitted that and moved on. Really, Can I ask you one final question? How do you want America to remember you as poet, activist, commentator, writer, historian, Nikki Giovanni? I want my grandmother to know that I did my best. And I don't care what those other people think. Okay. I care what my grandmother thinks. I know she's in heaven, and I want her to be proud of me. Nikki Giovanni activist, poet, commentator, writer, historian. Thank you so much for being our guests. Thank you so much. When Gamble and Huff ruled, that's when to be hot was cool, to care was correct, to be involved was without examination or explanation because it was just the right thing to do, to creatively express yourself while knowing who you and your people are. That's when everybody was young, including the world we lived in and the people who oppressed us. And everybody kept hoping that if we all lived long enough to grow up, maybe, just maybe, we would survive racism. And maybe they would give it up. And an older world would be safer and more hopeful and somehow younger than the young world we were living in. That's when we wore our bell bottoms and earth shoes and afros that reached the sky. And the guys practically poured themselves into their jeans so they moved slower while we had more physical mobility so we moved quicker and the media had begun warning black men about the dangers of loving black women but they weren't listening to the media then they were listening to their own hearts and the music that kept pouring out of the radio and people kept sort of falling in love and sort of wanting to do something important and after all didn't all the hippies meet on south street and wasn't there some sort of love train pulling out and my oh my look out for those backstabbers so we wouldn't let anybody divide us even though sometimes your best friend was after your lady. 
That's when the music was for us, about us, and by us. And Gamble and Huff didn't take a gamble or huff, but righteously brought the music out of us to place it back in us. And hey, they want to talk about intruders, and I always love those brothers, because that's what we all are if other people have their way. I mean, intruders? That's when in some wild and wonderful way, we were courageous enough to still fall in love and crazy enough not to hold back and sensible enough not to cry when it was over, nor whine nor beg and plead and threaten, but just find another love for another day. And even if people thought we were trite and silly, we knew we were just expressing a brand new us and oh, you better believe the people were ready for that train of coming. That's when we were strong and determined to change the world, and if not change it, leave it different from when we met it. And I like black people for that. I like us for our faith and our energy and loving our mamas and ourselves and the world and all the chances we took in trying to make everything better, which we did for some and definitely not for others. And I dislike other people for taking our music, our muse, our rap to sell their cars and bread and toothpaste and deodorant and sneakers, but never seeming to have enough to give back to the people who created it. And that's not a huff or a gamble, but the awful truth of white America. That's when the possibility was possible. And we got in our orange beetles and drove across country and back and rocked and rolled into a newer possibility while lassoing and harnessing and ultimately riding the night winds that bucked and resisted, but we held on. And we were right. And the possibilities closed down, but the beat goes on and the beat goes on and the beat goes on. That's when... Malcolm X and the Guardian, 21st of February, 1965. It's too bad Malcolm didn't play golf. He would have easily been number one without the ugly arrogance. Or maybe he should have been a comedian. We would all get the warmth of laughter without the shame of abuse. We know he was a singer, a blues man of the first order because he was a truth-teller. He sang a sad song of segregation and a love song of respect for our people. I'm sure he could dance. Greg Hines has nothing on Big Red. But he couldn't dodge the bullets that took him down. He was a gentleman of the First Order. Everyone felt safe in his company, even those he disliked and those who disliked him. When they make a real movie about his life, we'll see his courtship of Betty, his embracing of fatherhood and more, his understanding of himself that he, Malcolm, was the most important person. He learned to speak for himself, with us, not at us. He taught us that we can change and change again, seeking our better selves. We miss this great and gentle man. Raise your hand in favor of immigrants. How many of you sitting here think some woman of color, black, brown, yellow, white, woke up this morning thinking, golly, I can go to the airport and clean toilets? Raise your right hand. How many of you sitting here Woke up this morning thinking, how lucky can they be? Oh, Lordy, I wish I could do that. Raise your left hand. How many of us sitting here gave one dollar to those women knowing they are underpaid and not appreciated at all? Raise either hand. Did you know if we all gave one dollar every time we urinated, those women might take one hundred dollars home? to feed their mother, their children, their uncle who moved in with them, their husband who will beat them, raise any hand. How many of you, when you see those women say, thank God it's not me, raise both your mother hands and clap. Make me rain. Make me rain. Turn me into a snowflake. Let me rest on your tongue. Make me a piece of ice so I can cool you. Let me be the cloud that embraces you, or the quilt that gets you dry. Snuggle close, listen to me sing on the windowsill. Make me rain 
on you. There may be a timeline, but there is no time limit to change that does not, will not, cannot change. No matter what the color of the people or language they speak, no matter which God is served, no matter which food is eaten or forbidden, covered or shaved, no matter how we look at it, there have been slaves. Every civilization, or rather most, reach a point where slavery is recognized as wrong, or in some cases, simply a bad idea, or perhaps more accurately, those who used to sell slaves now no longer have the currency or strength to control the lives of human beings, so they create a lie on a Supreme Court for the same purpose. I have often wondered, when I think of the murder of Jesus, what he and Simon the Cyrenian talked about as Simon gave Jesus some relief with getting the cross to Calvary. We have a bit of an idea of what Socrates was thinking as he drank hemlock. In our time, we know Martin Luther King wanted to hear music at dinner. Play it beautifully for me before the shots took his life. And there would be many others who were hanged, beaten to death, fought in wars for the right or wrong side. But I have wondered, as a person living in Virginia, how the peanut got here. We know Europeans didn't go into communities to find West Africans. Africans did. We know when communities recognized defeat, they were lined up and brought to shore to be sold. But don't we also see a grandmother trying to defend her grandson and failing, reaching to put in his hand a peanut? Don't forget me, she says. And he holds tightly to what will be called America, where he is sold. He plants that charge for a promise to keep, and he stays to watch it grow. Others would escape and think him cowardly, but he had promises to keep. Others did not understand the strength it takes to wipe spit from your hanging brother, to cradle your daughter after a rape, to lovingly put your wife into the ground. But he had promises to keep, and he kept them. Virginia is not the peanut state. Virginia is the state of promises. The only question is, will we keep them? Poet, activist, commentator, writer, and professor, Nikki Giovanni. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's special broadcast, Black History in the Making, Reclaiming Our Past, Redefining Our Future. I'm Verna Avery Brown, broadcasting from WPFW Radio in the nation's capital. This is Black History in the Making, Reclaiming Our Past, Redefining Our Future. The show you just heard was produced in collaboration with the Pacifica COVID Task Force, the production team of COVID Race and Democracy, Pacifica Network Stations, and affiliates throughout the country. Our engineer is John Miller. Our production editors are Paulina Facilia, Mona Alliance, and Akua Holt, along with our media intern, Akono Kamau. Fahima Sack is our line producer. Steve Zelter and Nicole Holt are the executive producers. Our theme music by the godfather of Afrobeat, Fela Anikolapo Kuti. Water, no get enemy. Special thanks to Knitting Factory Records. Listen to this and other programs online and discover more about COVID, race, and democracy at covidtaskforce.pacifica.org. covidtaskforce.pacifica.org. Thank you for listening. Tune in to Pacifica Business Talk on 90.1 KPFT-FM at 12 o'clock noon every Thursday with me, John Henry, for live business talk and your calls on employment, the stock market, real estate, technology, scams and scandals, and all your business concerns. That's 12 o'clock noon on KPFT, your Houston Pacifica station, live 
here in Houston, Texas. Hi, I'm Steve Hunter with You Talk. That's a special program that gives you a chance to give some input right back into KPFT and to everybody that's listening to it. What do you think? What do you think is important? It gives us guidance in what we do in our programming and what's important. Weekday mornings from 8 to 9, immediately after Democracy Now! Call in. We throw you on the air. We all talk together. We have a chance to puzzle out what's kind of happening in this world and share it with a lot of other people. That's the purpose. There is no other program quite like it. I'm Steve Hunter.